0: Hello, you're listening to the Sower, a podcast of the Ciceronian Society. The Ciceronian Society is a community of Christian scholars and public intellectuals committed to the examination of three core themes: tradition, place, and things divine, and their role in the intellectual discipleship of the church and civilization generally. To learn more about us, our events, the podcast, our journal, Pietas, to sign up for our newsletter and make your tax deductible gift, please go to CiceronianSociety.org, that's C-I-C-E-R-O-N-I-A-N-S-O-C-I-E-T-Y.org. I'm Josh Bowman, the Vice President of the Ciceronian Society, and before introducing our guest, please join me in a moment of prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray, O Lord, that you would bless our conversation and that all we say and do would bring glory and honor to you. Amen. We're recording on Monday, June 19th, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my friend Mark David Hall. Mark, uh, starting in the fall, it will be a professor at the Regent, at Regent University's Robertson School of Government in Virginia, and he is also associated faculty with George Fox University, the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University, and a senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion. He just finished up in this last year as a visiting fellow at Princeton University's James Madison Program and as a visiting scholar at the Mercatus Center. Mark earned a Ph.D. in government from the University of Virginia, and he's written, edited, or co-edited a dozen books, including Did America Have a Christian Founding, published by Nelson Books in 2019, Great Christian Jurists in American History by Cambridge in 2019, Faith and the Founders of the American Public by Oxford in 2014, Roger Sherman and the Creation of the American Republic, also by Oxford in 2012, and The Forgotten Founders on Religion and Public Life with Notre Dame, in 2009, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I love this new book we got out, which uh, the book, by the way, the title of that is Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, which looks at how Christianity advanced freedom and equality for all Americans, um, released this year. it's gotten a lot of press, the endorsements on the back of the book, um, and across the board online and other podcasts have been glowing, um, and he is certainly the, one of the best people to talk about this topic. So welcome, Mark. Thank
1: you very much, Josh. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah. So uh, let's start with this question, which I think is always a really important question to ask any author, is why did you write this book? What, what really provoked this?
1: So initially, it was going to be a sequel to my last book, Did America Have a Christian Founding?, which came out in 2019. Um, between 2019 and this year, the 1619 Project, the New York Times 1619 Project came out, and this just really reinforced a... Um, A narrative that is all too common, popular authors and academics alike have routinely argued that Christianity has been a force for oppression and repression throughout American history and throughout world history, and I just think that's totally wrong. Recognizing, of course, that some Christians have appealed to the Bible to defend slavery or racism or sexism, you have to recognize that. But on balance, I want to argue that Christianity has been a force for progress, for liberty and equality for all. And so I sort of retooled my um, sequel to make that a strong argument. From the Puritans to the present day, I argue that Christianity has been a force for good in American history. And I could argue for world history, but in this book, it was just American history.
0: Yeah, the the world history argument, um, as soon as you said that, I was thinking of... um... Is it Rodney Stark? That That's right. Of? Yeah, the, the the what's that name of that book that where he goes through and argues about all the different ways they've contributed to liberty, um, and th- there's there's some great stuff on there about the history of liberty in in Christianity. Um, I actually just finished a book by uh, Robert Louis Wilkin, uh, the First Thousand Years of Christianity, which also made me think about all the different contributions that Christianity has made to the world. Just fascinating stuff. But we <laughs> don't want to go down that that tangent there. Um, You start the book off with the Puritans um, and uh, the the different misreadings that uh, people have leveled against them. Why why is it important to start there? Why why did you start there? And what what, what do they bring to the table for your argument?
1: I'll I'll answer that question in just a second. Let me also point out Tom Holland's book, Dominion, which is excellent. And one of the things I like about the book, I'm a little sorry for him. But he actually mentions that he was kind of brought up in the church, but he's drifted away from it. But Mm -hmm. nonetheless, he recognizes that Christianity has been a force for good throughout world history. So I I would highly commend that book. With respect to the pilgrims and the Puritans who follow them, I think way to to the extent to which Americans don't know anything about them. it, It comes from Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter or Arthur Miller's The Crucible. And they have this view that the Puritans are just intolerant theocrats who are oppressing everyone and they're terribly worried that someone's having fun somewhere. And so what I attempt to do is to rehabilitate them. And I'm not the only one who's done this. David D. Hall of Harvard Divinity School, Michael Winship of of Georgia has done this as well. But I point out that really the Puritans, the pilgrims and the Puritans who followed them, um, created the most Republican, small-R Republican institutions the world has ever seen. Um, They believed in religious toleration. They believed in fun. Um, they're they're really good people, and, and and we shouldn't dismiss them as is so often the case.
0: Yeah. Well, what about the whole war on Christmas? I was just thinking about that, because it, it wasn't was were the Puritans the ones that said can't have Christmas this year or something like that?
1: Am I getting the, that right? They, no, that's exactly right. So the okay. Puritans are child children of the Reformation, right. and they believe in sola scriptura. And let me just take a step back to that a little bit. They believe in sola scriptura, scripture alone, and they believe in the priesthood of all believers. That mm-hmm. is, every individual needs to read the Bible for himself or even herself. And so what you see in Reformed communities, in Calvinist communities, is an explosion of literacy. So you have almost universal male literacy in Puritan New England, and female literacy is not far behind. So these people are reading the Bible for themselves, they're interpreting it for themselves, they're arguing about it, they're congregationalists. So when it comes time to choose a new pastor, they argue among themselves and they take a vote. That sounds a whole lot like democracy, right? Yeah. yeah, So it's just... An obvious connection that is so often missed by people who want to associate um, liberalism with the secular John Locke, who comes along a, a century after the Puritans get going. Maybe not quite a century, but close to a century um, after the Puritans get going in New England. But it is true, as people of the book, they look to the Bible and they say, okay, what what, what sort of holidays does the Bible say we ought to celebrate? And they don't see a whole lot of saints' feast days and that sort of thing. They don't see Christmas. What they see is the Sabbath. And so they are great respecters of the Sabbath, don't work on the Sabbath. Um, They focus uh, during the Sabbath on worshiping God and honoring Him. Uh, But you're exactly right. They they don't celebrate Christmas or Easter or, or all sorts of other feast days. And it is important to note, I love Christmas. I love Easter. <laughs> and so I'd, I'm not arguing that Puritans had everything right. I don't think they did. But I got to tell you this, I would far rather be in Puritan New England than anywhere else on the face of the earth in, in the 17th century.
0: Yeah, right, right. Or in San Francisco circa 2023. Um, <laughs> that's right. Did I say that out loud? I uh, yeah, I, 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 really appreciate that. Um, I also think about the fact they didn't celebrate Easter Again, going back to that book, I literally just finished it last night, it, you know, that, that solves the problem of trying to find the date of Easter, which, I you know, learning the, how big of a deal that was in the first few hundred years of church history, uh, let's just not celebrate Easter. No, I don't, I don't agree with that, but interesting. Um, now, moving on for the Puritans. America's founders, they wrote and they approved the Declaration of Independence with this marvelous language about liberty and equality, but, you know, and as you mentioned earlier, some of them owned slaves. And the constitution they drafted approved a decade later didn't abolish slavery. Were, were, were they hypocrites? Can we call them, you know, Christian representatives
1: here? No, thank you for that question. This is probably my favorite chapter in the book. And so I, I think it's fair to critique the founders for not immediately abolishing slavery, and especially those who own slaves. not freeing their own slaves. But if we take a step back, we'll see that first of all, the vast majority of white Americans never owned a slave. The civic leaders tended to be wealthier, and so more of them owned slaves, but still many, many did not own a slave ever. Some of those who owned slaves were coming to see that it was an evil institution, and so they voluntarily freed their slaves. John Dickinson, at one point the largest slave owner in Delaware, freed all of his slaves. A, um, a Ben Franklin owned five enslaved persons throughout his lifetime um, He eventually freed the last of them and became president of the Pennsylvania Manumission Society John Jay of New York freed the last of his slaves And as governor signed a law putting slavery on the road to extinction in New York James Wilson owned one enslaved person and voluntarily freed him So many founders were coming to recognize this as an evil institution And they didn't want to have anything to do with it some founders, it's true, owned slaves and they did not free them, and yet even these founders were very, very critical of slavery. I go to some length to show that Thomas Jefferson, even though he owned slaves and didn't free them, took significant steps to put slavery on the road to extinction in America. Among the most important things I point out, the Northwest Ordinance banned slavery in what in the Old Northwest, that is, the states that became Wisconsin and Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin. And um, parts of Minnesota, Ohio. And so this was a very significant step. Eight states voluntarily either abolished slavery or put it on the road to extinction. So I think the founders were not hypocrites. They recognized that slavery was an evil institution and they took significant steps to eliminate it. Unfortunately, the invention of the cotton gin in 1793 made slavery a, a, a far more profitable institution, especially in the American South. And so slavery got a new lease on life. And by the time you get to the 1820s, for the first time, you have Americans defending slavery as a positive good, but those are not the American founders. The American founders, almost to a person, recognized that slavery was evil, and they wanted it to be done with that institution. Right.
0: <clears throat> We're going to come back to the uh, the War of Independence, but I want to jump ahead now because, to, uh, because related to this question of slavery, um, and I think you've, you've basically already answered it, because we're recording this on Juneteenth, which personally, the more I learn about this holiday, um, the more I, I wonder why we haven't been celebrating it for years, um, in the sense that this was the day that the Union Army came to Texas and finally enforced the Emancipation and Proclamation, as I understand it, um, and after the Civil War. Um, so I, in, in a way because your argument is, is so much that Christianity is not the enemy of freedom. It's not a bunch of hypocrites, neither at the founding nor later, right? Because it's not only, our, you know, because there were Christians starting in the 20, 1820s, 1830s, who now only owned slaves um, and into the Civil War who defended slavery. Um, you know, is is there, how do I say this? Even if the founders uh, could be cleared uh, as in your reading and, and as you stated, as I, I think you've done, um, by the Civil War is that is, and after the Civil War, can, can you still make that case about American Christianity and that American Christian tra- tradition?
1: Unfortunately, I think we have to recognize that throughout American history, Christians have appealed to the Bible and Christian theology to defend evil institutions, slavery, racism, sexism, poverty, the whole nine yards. And so I don't think we can hide from that. What I attempt to argue, though, is that on balance... Christianity has been a force for good. So in the American founding, for primarily Christian reasons, founders were coming to understand that slavery is evil. They took significant steps to end it. Unfortunately, the contingent gave slavery a new lease on life. But what we see in the 19th century is many, many Christians motivated by their faith to oppose slavery. And I'm talking here about the abolitionists, of course. Um, one of my favorite abolitionists is Sojourner Truth. The title of my book is Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land. Sojourner Truth, that phrase, of course, is from Leviticus, it's inscribed on in the Liberty Bill. But for our purposes, Sojourner Truth used to go to meetings. And She would hang up a banner with these words on it, proclaim liberty throughout all the land, and she would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. She would call people to repent of their sins, and so primarily she was an evangelist, but once she had shared the gospel message, she would condemn the sins of God's people, that is slavery, and so she was out there opposing slavery because of her Christian convictions, And of course, you might say, well, she's an African-American. She has an interest in doing so. And fair enough. But plenty of white Americans who had no self-interest in opposing slavery did so as well. And they sacrificed a great deal of time and effort and money opposing this evil, horrible institution. And so I think when we think about... Americans' complicity with slavery, we have to recognize that indeed some were complicit with this evil institution, but many were opposing it, and thank goodness that eventually slavery was ended. Now, I don't think it had to be ended through a bloody civil war. I think it's a case that only in three countries was slavery ended through a bloody civil war. In many countries, it was ended peacefully. Even in America, it was ended in many states peacefully, and so as Christians, we have an obligation to be involved in the public square, fighting for equality and justice and liberty for all. And sometimes we'll succeed. Unfortunately, in the American case, I'm very glad that slavery was ended, of course, uh, but I wish it didn't have to be through a bloody civil war.
0: Of course, we can agree on that entirely. Um, I, yeah, I, this is so; it's just refreshing to hear. This is this is you know one of the things. One of the reasons I recommend, many reasons I recommend this book, is because it's it's honest. You know, I mean that's that, that's such a key part of being a scholar is be honest about the scars, but also don't don't only you know if if you looked at an individual and only saw their scars and only saw what was wrong with them, do you really know them? Um, at the same time, if all you ever saw was their perfections, right, uh, or their 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 good qualities, that's probably a better outlook. But um, you know, I I just can't imagine only focusing on that. There's a lot of balance here. There's a lot of honesty and sincerity and just great uh, uh, source material that you're drawing from. And given all the work you've done before, um, you know, you're <laughs> overqualified to do this. I, I also was thinking too about um, you know, our, our president at Cicerone Society, James Patterson. Some of his early work, um, I was reminded, was um, on uh, the, the alternative tradition in the South. I mean, one of the things that a lot of scholars overlook, and I think there's a lot of room for more research here, is there's an entire tradition of clergy and Christians in the South, in the 19th century, attacking slavery um, and and not defending it and and going after uh, white and black Americans, going after these different arguments, um, but they're they're often drowned out by the the pro-slavery voices. But Christians were not all certainly not all of one mind on this at all. Um, now let's go back to let's go back uh, about a, a few generations. Um, to the American founding. Now you argued that American uh, founders were um, influenced by Christianity. In your previous book, uh, Did America Have a Christian Founding? But uh, as as a lot of Protestants, especially Calvinists like to point out, um, Romans 13 seems to prohibit rebellion. So was the war for American independence a biblical war? Was it a just war?
1: Oh, thank you for that question. That is one of my favorite chapters, the second favorite chapter perhaps of the book. So, of course, primarily Christians are going to be interested in the question, was the war for American independence a biblical war? Of the Christians who have addressed this question, most say, no, it was not. That Romans 13 requires a a, a subjection to the civic authority, and so therefore rebellion is not justified. One of the things I argue, and I'm not the only one who argues this, Eric Patterson of the Religious Freedom Institute argues it as well, is that, in fact, Christians, Protestants specifically, um, from the time of John Calvin, had begun to develop a theory of how to interpret Romans 13. The ineffects of this. Romans 13 is discussing a just government, not an unjust government, or not a tyranny. And you can get to this if you go down to Romans 13, about verses 4 and 5, where it says, Governments punish those who do evil and reward those who do good. Well, what if you have an entity claiming to be a government that routinely punishes those who do good and rewards those who do evil? That's not the sort of government Romans 13 is talking about, and therefore it's appropriate for Christians to resist this tyrannical authority. This is perhaps most obvious in the case of, say, an Adolf Hitler, right? Nazi Germany. So Bonhoeffer was absolutely correct to try to resist this tyranny. In the American context, one of the things I point out is Americans are very Protestant people. About 98% of Americans of European descent are Protestant. 50 to 75% are Calvinists. And the Calvinists, from the time of John Calvin, had developed this very robust resistance theory. John Calvin is probably the most conservative of the Calvinists. He's crystal clear, it seems to me, in the Institutes in saying that inferior magistrates, may resist a superior magistrate who becomes a tyrant. Now, you could easily argue, it seems to me, that the state legislatures and the Continental Congress are the sort of inferior magistrates he has in mind, and these entities rose up against perceived acts of Parliament and the King that all led in the direction of tyranny from 17. 64 until 1775, you see a series of acts coming out of Parliament, where Parliament violates the British Constitution. They, in effect, begin a war with America by sending troops to Lexington and Concord in 1775, and so Americans, in their minds, were completely justified as, as a matter of, of, of biblical theology, Romans 13, in resisting this, this under, their understanding of tyranny. Um, coming from Parliament and the King. So I think it's absolutely a biblical war. I think it's there's biblical warrant for it. In terms of the just war tradition, I think you can easily argue as well that Americans did not simply pick up muskets in 1764 when Parliament began to act in an unconstitutional fashion. They petitioned, they boycotted, they protested, and they did so for over a decade before shots were exchanged. And so I think it's, it's, a biblical war as well. I, I, I go into a variety of the criteria of the just war tradition in the chapter, but suffice it to say, I think it was absolutely a biblical and a just war.
0: Now, going back and reading, you know, these these Christian themes in the founding, one of the things you're going to get, it, it within, and this will likely come from people who look at the cover of the book and never open the rest of it, Um but given contemporary rhetoric, especially on social media, I know you've already faced this, right? You're bound to get labeled Marx a Christian nationalist, whatever that means. Now, I don't want to impact the entire meaning of that word here. We, got, I, I have other things to do today, but um, I mean, you, you've been dealing with this for years, you've been addressing it for years. Why is this, you know, to to what extent does this book also address, perhaps indirectly, that charge that those of us who are Christians and say we you know talk about a Christian nation or talk about a Christian founding or talk about this Christian tradition I mean is this is this Christian nationalism is this is that is that what you're going for here
1: Yeah oh well, thank you for that question so you mentioned I spent the last academic year at Princeton and my main duty there was to write a book on contemporary debates about Christian nationalism one of the things I point out is that no one in America was calling himself or herself a Christian nationalist prior to 2022. <laughs> this was simply and solely a label of critics beginning in 2006. And these critics, by Christian nationalism, they mean a... a a group of Christians who are theocrats who want to take over America for Christ and literally oppress every racial minority, oppress women, oppress every religious minority. And basically it's, it's, it's white males, maybe white Protestant males, who are the only group who is not oppressed. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a ridiculous... Re- ridiculous argument. And it turns out that something like 52% of Americans are are Christian nationalists, according to Whitehead and Perry, including 65% of African Americans, if you can get your head around that. So I I think it's just a ridiculous uh, bunch of literature, and I critique it heartily. Now, of course, I have to say this as a follower of Christ. When, it, when individuals have for 15 years been using this simply as a slur, of course, in 2022, some Christians have to come out and say, "Oh yeah, we're Christian nationalists." Marjorie Taylor Greene, Stephen Wolf, Andrew Torba, Doug Wilson, and others it, it, try to embrace the label. I have told them to their face. I think this this is highly imprudent. Why would you possibly embrace? this label. Let's say you like the nation state. You think it's better than having a global empire or a failed state. Just call yourself a patriot. And of course you want Christian morality to infuse public life, right? Equality, liberty, peace, and so forth. Uh, But don't call yourself a Christian nationalist. So I am in no way a Christian nationalist as the term is usually used. I am a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ. I believe that I have an obligation to provide salt and light as best I can, to fight for the rights of every American, regardless of race, regardless of religion, to, um, to encourage peace, justice, and equality. Absolutely. These are Christian values. Not uniquely Christian values, but they're Christian values. And so I'm going to advocate them for them in the public square. But as the term is usually used, I am in no way a Christian nationalist. And in my forthcoming book, I'll critique that on every level.
0: That's fantastic, and one of the things I think is so important about your book and, and related literature is how, look, the spread of Christianity w- w- is not bad for everyone. It's, it, it, even if you're not a Christian, you will benefit from more Christians around. Um, I remember I, I have a friend who is a uh, a very committed atheist who I, we we love to go back and forth, have great conversations, and he said it. Bo- he said it bothers me that the, the religiously unaffiliated, the nuns, as they're called, are increasing. He says, because when I look at history, he says, my people, meaning uh, atheists or those who don't take uh, God seriously, seem to do a lot more damage than your people. Um, it's the first atheist I ever met who said that, uh, but I, I thought, well, <laughs> you may have a point there. Uh, Want me to tell you about the gospel here? Because um, I already have several times, but um, and that, that, that's the conversation that, that happens, but um you know, we, we keep saying as Christians, but one of the things that you and I have to confess here, if you will, um, is that you and I are Protestants, um, but a lot of our listeners, probably the majority of them, are Catholics, and they are aware, uh, as few Protestants I find are, of that complicated relationship in America between Protestants and Catholics. You know, there's the anti-Catholic animus and arguments for church-state separation that, that were often driven by, uh, in some cases— by Protestants just trying to keep the Catholics out. Um, how do you address that, that that anti-Catholic animus in the American Christian and uh, religious tradition here?
1: Yeah, thank you for that, Josh. So I am a Protestant, although I'm an Anglican Protestant, so I'm at least halfway to Rome. And there's That's a right. lot. Me of, too. Me too. <laughs> there's a lot about Roman Catholicism that I like. Uh, but if we go back to the 19th century, and even many of your listeners might not recognize this, if you go back to the 19th century and take papal encyclicals seriously, they really do raise questions. Can you be a Catholic and a good small d democratic citizen, because they seem to condemn freedom of speech, free exercise of religion, democracy, and even Americanism, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think part of the problem is Protestants in the 19th century are aware of these papal encyclicals, and they come to the reasonable conclusion that a Catholic can't be a good American citizen. Now, part of the reality, of course, and I think even your Catholic listeners would recognize this, is many, many American Catholics aren't good Catholics. They don't take papal encyclicals seriously. They don't take the church's teaching on um, say contraception seriously. They kind of pick and choose. They're good Americans, in other words. Kind of american Protestant Catholics. (laughs) Um, So, indeed, in the 19th century, as Catholics, in 1776, maybe 2% of the American population is Catholic. They're not a majority anywhere, not even in Maryland. Into the 19th century, you begin to have these great waves of Catholic immigration, so that by the 19th, the mid-19th century, there may be 25% of the population. And indeed, you have Protestant majorities reacting fairly violently to these Catholics. They're scared of them, and they discriminate against them. In the mid-19th century, we begin to have what we would recognize as public schools. And the public schools are intentionally designed to create good, democratic Protestant citizens. And so they want to engage in social engineering. And so you go to the public school, you read the Protestant Bible, you say Protestant prayers, you learn about the virtues of democracy. Now, the Catholics weren't necessarily against Democracy, but they said not unreasonably, "Hey, we want to have our own schools where we read our own version of the Bible and say prayers, and where we have priests lead us in prayers instead of some Protestant layperson." And so they began to de- to demand their share of the tax revenues to fund their schools. In response, Protestant majority said, "No, you can't do that. That would be a sectarian. We don't want any." public funds going to Catholic schools because we're committed to the principle of the separation of church and state. And so this is really in in America, beginning of the mid-19th century, where we get this commitment um, among some Americans to the strict separation of church and state. But what's incredibly important to recognize is that these Americans who were arguing for this weren't really against prayer or Bible reading. They were just against funding Roman Catholics. So public schools were in effect. Protestant schools, and they were trying to keep funding from going to Catholic schools. So in my great state of Oregon in 1922, to jump forward a little bit, um, we passed a referendum banning all private schools. And lo and behold, every private school in the state, with one exception, was Roman Catholic school. So this was purely anti-Catholic animus. 1948, Protestants and other Americans united for separation of church and state were founded. Was founded. So again, I, I, I try to detail this. I'm borrowing heavily from Philip Hamburger's wonderful books, The Separation of Church and State, where I, I think he makes a case, and I make the distilled case that really in America, this idea that church and state must be separated is simply and solely driven by anti Catholic animus. Now, this changes in the 1960s when the U.S. Supreme Court comes out and it surprises everyone by declaring teacher-led prayer in public schools to be unconstitutional, to declare Bible reading in, in public schools to be unconstitutional. And now all of a sudden Protestants wake up and say, wait, this is not what we signed up for. And you begin to have Protestants and Catholics working together against this, this separationist movement, uh, but that really is a story for the 70s and 80s. Um, as you point out, throughout the mid-19th century, the mid-20th century, this idea that church and state must be separated is purely and simply driven by anti-Catholic animus.
0: Yeah, it's it, it's striking to me. I I have no, obviously I wasn't born then, but when I think about the Ciceroian Society and, and how much it is a ecumenical in the sense of we're, uh, it, lots of Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant you know, presence at these conferences and the different things we do—that that is so encouraging to me. <laughs> Part of me thinks it's because the way the state reacted uh, and the courts reacted in the '60s, '70s, and beyond—you um, know—nothing unites like a common enemy, I guess. Uh, but it's—it's the, it's been so encouraging to see that that just doesn't—it doesn't even occur to me unless I'm looking at it historically, in, in a sense that the 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 alliances and the partnerships. Uh, in this, in a fight for liberty, and in a, in a fight to be better Christians and to be a better c- country, uh, you Protestants and Catholics are deeply united in that. Um, yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, well, let me um, let me let me just second that, and let me take a big step back to the American founding. I think sure. America's founders were committed to this idea of religious equality. So, Article Six of the Constitution advanced religious tests for federal office. Mm -hmm. And in the ratification debates, anti-federalists pointed out that, well, this means a Muslim, or a Jew, or even atheist could hold federal office, and generally the federalists had to say, yes, that's right. Now, they thought this would never happen, and that's not unreasonable for them to think that in the in the late 18th century, but the principle was there. And I quote several times in Did America Have a Christian Founding in my Proclaimed Liberty book, George Washington's wonderful letter to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. There's only about 2,500 Jews in in North America at the time, but Washington makes it crystal clear that Jews, just like Protestants, just like Catholics, have the ability, the freedom, the natural right to worship God according to dictates a conscience, and I think we can add to act upon that religious conviction wherever possible. And so fortunately, I think after the 1980s, really all Christians have come together and have genu- gen- generally been advocates for religious liberty for all. And so you and I as Protestants can celebrate the creation of a Catholic charter school in Oklahoma and look forward to the creation of Anglican charter schools and Baptist charter schools and even an Islamic charter school. And I don't say this out of any sort of muddled... Postmodernism. I will try to convert every Muslim I run across to Christianity, but if they don't voluntarily convert, they certainly have the right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience and to have access to the same resources that everyone else has. And so I think, yeah, fortunately, since the 1980s, um, people of faith have been able to come together to argue for this principled pluralism.
0: Now, speaking of the 1980s, something something really, really special happened then. I was born. Um, I don't know <laughs> yeah. if you know that. Uh, <laughs> no, thank we, uh, goodness. That's right. You're, you're welcome, world. Um, but I can remember, even as a kid in the early 90s, that there was there was a bipartisan affection for religious liberty. Um, it did not feel like something that was threatened. It didn't come up at church. Uh, it didn't come in casual conversation. And that, that spirit that I can remember in my childhood, in the innocence of the... 1990s, or as I perceived it, um, it's clearly shifted. We we see it not only in our politics and our media, but uh, but I also, when I was a professor, I saw it in my students' papers. Um, even in, at ostensibly Christian schools, students would openly advocate now for either censoring religion's public presence or at least forcing it to compromise on traditional beliefs regarding things like sexuality and gender, among other things. Um, and I, I remember seeing. You know, arguments or uh how do i say this they they, they opposition the media to radical religious freedom arguments i think is a phrase i saw um and in a sense that there's something now instead of this bread uh that 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 religious liberty rather than being as american as apple pie all of a sudden it's something dangerous or something suspect suspect why do you think this happened
1: oh that's a great question let me um Let me begin by going back to 1963. Uh, William Brennan, the progressive Supreme Court justice, comes up with a wonderful test for supporting Protecting Religious Liberty in Sherbert versus Werner. And basically it says that if in America, you almost never have the state explicitly banning a religious activity. Instead, what happens is the state passes a law that is neutral and generally applicable that keeps some people from acting on their religious convictions or tries to force them to act against them. And so he came up with a great test. He said such laws are only permissible if the state has a compelling interest behind them And they pursue that interest in the least intrusive means. So this is a progressive who came up with a wonderful test for protecting the religious liberty of all Americans. Unfortunately, in 1990, the U.S. Supreme Court abandoned this wonderful test and basically said, as long as the law is neutral, it's okay. Now, that is not very protective of religious liberty. This would mean, for instance, that the state could say, everyone has to serve in the military, and when you have a, a, a Quaker or Mennonite or a member of the Brethren who are religious pacifists, they would just simply be forced to act against their convictions or thrown in jail. Fortunately, as you point out, in 1993, the, U, the United States Congress came together in 97 to 3 in the Senate, unanimously in the House, they passed a Religious Freedom, religious Freedom Restoration Act to restore this old test from Sherbert versus Werner. The law was signed. It the bill was signed into law by President Bill Clinton, and so this reinforces your childhood memories. Everyone in the 1990s could come together to protect religious liberty. In the 21st century, what we've seen is progressives have pretty much turned their back on religious liberty, especially when it comes to LGBTQ issues or life and death issues. So if you have a baker, let's just call him Jack Phillips, who refuses to create a a custom cake to celebrate a same-sex wedding, uh, this cannot be allowed to stand. And we're going to prosecute him with the full force of the state. If you have a doctor who has a religious conviction against participating in an abortion, we're gonna make him choose between his profession and, and and violating his conscience. And so the left has pretty well completely abandoned religious liberty in these cases. Now, to be fair, I think the the, the left is probably still protective of, say, the Native American who wants to use peyote in a religious ceremony. But when it comes to these life and death issues or LGBTQ issues, uh, there's no toleration whatsoever. Why did this come about? I think in part, maybe people on the left have embraced um, this sort of wokeness as a new religion, and they think it just trumps all other convictions. As well, you pointed earlier to the rise of the nuns. You're having more and more Americans who are saying, I don't have any religion. And if you don't have any religion, perhaps you don't have the same sort of respect for religious liberty as a religious person. And that's not necessarily a pro-Christian argument. I can easily imagine that a, a sincere Muslim would have a greater appreciation of Jack Phillips's religious convictions than an atheist would. And so I think the rise of the nuns probably explains a lot of this retreat from religious liberty.
0: Okay, good. Thank you. Um, I was on mute there for a second. My dog is barking um, <laughs> clearly at the at the uh, th- those d- disagreeing with religious liberty. I was curious while while you were answering. That, I thought to myself, you know, it was ninety seven to three. Who were the three that voted against this and, uh, in in nineteen ninety three? It was Senator Byrd of West Virginia, Senator Helms of North Carolina, and Senator Matthews of Tennessee. Uh, two Democrats and a Republican. I, I don't have an interpretation there, but um, that's just curious to me that those were the three, uh, all, you know, all three from more right-leaning states in a way, I mean, West Virginia being its own thing. Um, anyway, I, I just think that that's curious. Uh, I want to finish with this, um, because it's, it's of concern to everybody who's listening. You know, we're, we're in an interesting moment right now, uh, regardless of the election next year in 2024, um, do you think religious liberty, do you think the the future of religious liberty in the United States based on what you've read and studied and looked at and followed, do you think it's promising? Uh, do you think it's going to expand or do you think there's a risk of it contracting? like where I, I know we can't you know we can't tell the future here. Um, but you know where 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 are you at uh, in terms of thinking about the future of religious liberty in America today?
1: I am very worried by what I see on the, the American left, the progressive side of the aisle. I think there's much less of a respect for religious liberty. And so I think when we look at the sort of um, judicial appointments made by a Joe Biden or a Kamala Harris, perhaps, in the future, yeah, I, I get a little worried. Fortunately, we have a very solid U.S. Supreme Court right now that is very protective of religious liberty, Uh, But it's one of my top issues. I I think we have to be profoundly concerned by it, and I would encourage all of of your listeners to ask these questions of candidates. Do you support religious liberty? And to push them, everyone's going to say yes in the abstract, but ask them specifically, do you support the ability of a Jack Phillips not to participate in the same-sex wedding ceremony? Do you support the ability of a nurse to be able to decline to participate in an abortion if she has a religious conviction against doing so? And I I, I would take these issues very, very seriously. So in 2016, I, I actually publicly came out against Donald Trump because I did not trust him, and I thought he was a, a, a boorish buffoon. Um, I have to say, though, his judicial appointments were excellent, and they have been very protective of religious liberty and generally good on other issues, certainly on the pro-life issue. And so I, I, I held my nose and voted for him in 2020. And in 2024, this is going to be a central issue that, I, that I'm that i thinking about as I cast my presidential vote. What sort of justices is the next president likely to appoint? What sort of policies is he likely to support as a matter of Either signing legislation or administrative law, and I think religious liberty should be among the top issues we think about.
0: I think that's interesting. I, I wasn't, I wasn't planning on asking this, but I, perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll push you on something here at the end. You know, because I, I th- this vote for the president who's going to appoint the justices that you want uh, on the one hand. At the same time, um, it you know the the results of an election are going to do nothing to impact that, that growth of the nuns, the religiously unaffiliated um, you know is, is there a sense in which you know, the, the, the political response to this is less important than our duty to spread the gospel? I mean I think you're going to probably say yes here, but um, in a sense that part of me is a little uh, concerned. Um, not even if someone, you know, you know, Trump didn't know these justices. someone gave him the list and he, he listened to it, but, um, but he, you know, he did pick some great people, but part of me is a little worried that I don't necessarily trust him or even some others to succeed in this regard because there's not as many people on their side as there used to be. I mean, um, if, if, if this, if this, the number of nuns increases, democracy doesn't seem to be on our side as much anymore, just by sheer numbers, perhaps. Uh, maybe that, that's a little too pessimistic, but I, I guess, how would you respond to that? I mean, maybe maybe we need to think about it uh, more broadly and less politically. How would you respond to that?
1: Yeah, I think you and I are in complete agreement here. Um, politics will not solve the, the, the most pressing problems facing America today. We need to share the gospel, we need to win hearts and minds, we need to be active at the individual level, at the local level, in meeting the needs of those that are least well off. Uh, But I think it is the case in America, we have the ability to vote, and it would simply irresponsible not to vote. And so what we have to do is we have to think, okay, what are the best possible choices? And you didn't exactly ask this, but I got to tell you, um, (laughs) Donald Trump is like the last place candidate in my mind for who should be the Republican nomination for president. Um, I'm a Ron DeSantis guy, but several of the others are far superior to him. And so when I cast my primary vote, I'm going to attempt to speak into the process through doing so. Um, In the final analysis, though, if the choice comes down, and I hope it doesn't, but if the choice comes down to Donald Trump or Joe Biden, then we have to think, okay, are we going to vote for the person likely to do the most good, or are we going to cast a protest vote? And I'm not saying the latter is necessarily a bad thing. I did that in 2016. I cast a protest vote. And that might be the proper response. Uh, But especially given what Donald Trump actually did in his four years as president, especially with respect to Supreme Court appointments, but also with respect to executive orders on religious liberty and that sort of thing, I think in the final analysis, I would come down to casting my vote for him. But that is not our ultimate hope. It can't be. I agree with you 100% on that.
0: Excellent. I, I'm obligated by the, in my inner lawyer to remind everyone that Sister Ryan Society is a 5-1-C-3 organization that <laughs> neither neither endorses any policy or candidate but I will tell everyone that I am now the age of 37. So just just uh, set that aside if you've read the Constitution. You know what I mean? Yeah. I am now eligible. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> All right. <laughs> there you go. There's your answer. Well, Mark, uh, I, I'm, we're going to wrap it up here. It's always a joy to talk to you and to see you. I'm grateful you take the time to share with us today.
1: Well, thank you so much, Josh. And I have to say, I, I went to the last Cicerone Society meeting, and I loved it. And I will make everyone I can in the future. It's a great organization, and thank you for your leadership of it.
0: Thanks so much, Mark. Well, you've been listening to The Sower, a production of the Ciceronian Society. If you've enjoyed this conversation and you'd like to meet more people like Mark, have these kinds of conversations, we hope you'll consider joining us for our 2024 conference in Plano, Texas, February 29th through March 2nd at the Hope Center. The uh, panel and paper proposals are due by September 1st, 2024, and more information can be found on our website. Um, And the topic of religious liberty, I should say, from a historical, legal, theological, philosophical, political perspective, would be great for that event, and I encourage any of you who are researching that to uh, submit something. Now, be sure to rate and review this podcast, share it with your friends, check out our website at ciceroniansociety.org, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Thank you for listening.